Welcome to the podcast. We've got some news. The audiobook for Jacob I Have Loved is officially available for purchase. You can find it on Audible or you can get it through Amazon or iTunes. There is a link to the audiobook in this episode description or you can find it on our Facebook or Instagram. If you'd like a preview of the audiobook, we've got the first three chapters already uploaded on this podcast. While you're there, what you're going to want to do is go ahead and subscribe to this channel. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or YouTube, scroll down and leave us a comment or review. Here is a review from the podcaster Books and Parchments. Let's see. This is really a Lance Lambert classic, perhaps his flagship book. The audio narration is excellent. A worthy read slash listen. As a side note, and I'm not being paid to say this, Books and Parchments is an amazing podcast and resource for Christian literature. There is a link in the description to find out more about their ministry, so be sure to check them out. We also have a giveaway coming very soon on our Facebook and on our Instagram accounts. These are two separate giveaways, so you're going to want to make sure that you follow us on both accounts. We have got some free stuff coming, and it's going to be cool. In other news, the print book, What Is God Doing?, is currently 25% off for the month of July. This book gives an excellent overview and synopsis of church history and of the movements of God throughout the centuries. You can find this book on our website. Lastly, I would like to thank you for your support, especially for the kind emails, messages, and reviews. This ministry absolutely could not continue the way that it does without you, and we appreciate you. Okay, let's start the intro. You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, visit lancelambert.org. Today, we listen to a message called Small Things Which Can Lead to God's Purpose. In this episode, Lance teaches how it is in the small things that our true spiritual character is revealed. Let's listen. Could we turn to uh, three uh, verses in different parts of the Old Testament in Zechariah and chapter 4 and verse 10? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? Just that one sentence. For who hath despised the day of small things? of small things. And then in Isaiah and chapter 60 and verse 22, the little one shall become a thousand and the small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. The little one shall become a thousand and the small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Joshua, the book of Joshua, and chapter 23 and verse 10. One man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God. He it is that fighteth for you as he spake unto you. Now, 
I have a little word on my heart. Perhaps it's not right to say little word, but it's about little things. Little things. Who shall despise the day of small things? You know, I think when finally the whole story is told, we shall discover that every great movement of God, every great um, servant of the Lord, um, their history began with something quite small. We all tend to put so much upon great things, what we consider to be significant things. Most of us, as believers, if something really large loomed up in front of us, would recognize it either as the Lord or not the Lord. And we would be careful, I think, in really big issues to do the right thing. But where we are found out again and again and again is in small things. For it is really in the small things that our true spiritual character is revealed. And it's our attitude to small things and the way that we respond to something that seemingly is routine or insignificant or hasn't really got much that is apparently of the Lord in it that determines our spiritual history. Of course, it would be exciting to be able to go through the Old Testament and look at small things that led to great things. There are, well, there are so many examples of these small things. Little things that seemed at the time surely to have been quite insignificant and yet which led to very great things. I think of Gideon's barley loaf, the dream of the little barley loaf that rolled into the Midianite camp and caused absolute consternation and brought victory to the people of God. Of course, it was a picture of himself. Uh, and what God was doing in him. I think of David's five little smooth pebbles, of which he only used one. And that one little pebble brought victory to the people of God. There are multitudinous um, examples of small things which in the hand of God and because the servant of the Lord was careful and sensitive to the Lord, uh, became the means by which tremendous, there was a tremendous fulfillment of the purpose of God. I have only confined myself, because we have been looking at the um, gospel according to Mark, um, again these last weeks, to just a few examples in this wonderful gospel of Mark. I find it very, very moving the way people who uh, I'm sure at the time uh, were tested uh, and tried, perhaps to the nth degree, over something apparently insignificant, obeyed the Lord and have walked into the pages of the Bible. In other words, we had the record right within the Word because somebody somebody 
uh, obeyed the Lord in something which must have seemed to them very small. There are so many of these examples. I think, for instance, of, 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 of one that is a, a very obvious one, and that is Mark and chapter 12 and verse 41 to 44. And Jesus sat down over against the treasury and beheld how the multitude cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a poor widow and she cast in two mites which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, this poor widow cast in more than all they that are casting into the treasury. For they all did cast in of their superfluity, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Now, that is a wonderful story. It is the story of one little soul in the thousands of Israel who that day cast in every single thing she had. Her whole living went into the treasury. It was, of course, for her a big issue. But when you compare it, with the large sums that were deposited in the treasury with a great flourish by many, many others. Her little gift is quite insignificant. And I suppose that most people think of this story of the little widow more or less in those terms, that it is a very moving story of someone who gave everything she had. It is far, far more. For this incident marks the end of our Lord's, uh, the record of our Lord's ministry and the beginning of that last section of Mark, in fact, the last week of his life leading up to his sacrifice on the cross. And Mark, in the most remarkable way, contrasts first in verse 38 to 40 and in the verses before all those who really represent the establishment or the leadership, the different religious parties and the political parties of the nation with all their arguments, their trick questions, their way of trying somehow or other to ensnare the Lord Jesus. And he ends up with this. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who desire to walk in long robes who, uh, and to have salutations in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and chief places at the feasts, they that devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these shall receive a greater condemnation. What our Lord was saying was this. He was looking in the fig tree for fruit. And wherever he looked, he found only leaves. There was nothing in the establishment, in any of the religious parties, that could be called spiritual fruit. This little widow, that day, redeemed the Jewish people. She became the representative of that, my, that small remnant 
of godly people in Israel who had followed the Lord with all their heart. She represented that day all that God ever required of his people. For the Lord doesn't need our gold. The Lord doesn't need our silver. The Lord doesn't need a fraction of our time. God can do without us. If God wants to, he can do without us. But the thing God desires above every other thing is our hearts. For out of our hearts are the issues of life. And once he has got the heart, then he has everything. And on that day, this little widow, with her seemingly so insignificant gift, became, as it were, the symbol of all that God had required of his people. He redeemed, he was the vindic she was the vindication of God's purpose for Israel. I think that's wonderful. It's very easy for us when the Lord is dealing with us to feel, what does it matter? Look at so and so. Marvelous gift of oratory. Look at so-and-so, wonderful gift of organization. Look at so-and-so, wonderful sort of energy and zeal for the Lord. Look at so-and-so, they're wealthy, they can give so much to the Lord. Well, what does it matter? I am just some simple believer. I've got nothing to offer. What does it matter? I am sure that the enemy who does not dislike us as much as he hates the Lord. We are small fry. The reason why we are objects of satanic antagonism and hatred is the Lord's interests and the Lord's purposes in us and that we give some, something to the Lord which rejoices his heart. That the devil hates. He said, I will be like the Most High. And he hates the worship of God's people. He hates the praise of God's people. He hates their dependence upon the Lord Jesus. Don't you think he pulled out all stops to somehow or other um, uh, 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 sidetrack that little widow from that day when he knew that somehow or other she was perhaps destined in her giving to mean something to God and isn't it wonderful that the Lord Jesus sat over against the treasury why the Lord Jesus didn't do that in a lazy manner he didn't do it in a coincidental manner he went over to sit over against that treasury deliberately to wait for that one little widow who was the representative of all that God had ever required of Israel he had never required Israel to be marvelous and powerful and mighty and sort of wealthy and all the rest of it all he wanted was a heart of devotion. And that little widow that day, she was there on time. She did not disappoint her Lord. She did not fail her Lord. She had only a farthing. Two mites, the smallest copper coins in circulation at, the, at that time. And those two little mites, which are not bigger than my small fingernail. So insignificant. She she threw them in to the treasury. And do you know what Jesus said? 
He said, she has cost him more than all who have given. Two little mites in the estimation, in the estimate of God were more than all the thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds that were poured into that treasury. I'm quite sure the Lord sits over against our treasury, apart from anything else. Looking and looking and looking for the heart's attitude. But of course it's not just the treasury. It's the Lord looking for the heart's devotion and you know, you may have only two mites, but if you give that two mites in its entirety and it costs you everything, it may lead you into a place in the purpose of God. We do not know this little widow, widow's name. We shall one day. She will make herself known to us or we shall be introduced to her and we shall be told this is the one, this is so-and-so who cast the two mites into the treasury. She has found her place in the eternal purpose of God. Uh, she is recorded in the book, just like Malachi says, uh, then the Lord will write up on seemingly insignificant conversations and he will record it in that book. Now that's just one thing. I've got a few others. We must rush on. Um, I think of Mark and uh, uh, chapter 11 and um, verse just um, verses 1 to 4. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village that is over against you, and straightway as ye enter into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon no man ever yet sat. Loose him and bring him. And if anyone say unto you, Why do you do this? Say ye, The Lord hath need of him. And straightway he will send him back hither. Now, my point here is, again, here is something so very routine in one sense. Not routine in the sense that all the time we're being sent um, to untie colts um, that have never been broken in. Um, but it's routine in this sense that really this is such an insignificant thing in one way. How did the Lord ever sort of get somebody to tie up that coat? And secondly, don't you think that the Spirit of the Lord or an angel of God must have somehow visited somebody and said, look here, the coat, tie it up and leave it there, and when it's taken, don't worry. Now, of course, I mean, you say straight away, well, I'm not sure that you can read that into the story, but I, I don't know. I think when it comes to our possessions, we get very bothered if the Lord said to you, take your motorbike and put it so-and-so, leave it there, and if it gets taken by somebody, don't bother. <laughs> I think you'd be most bothered. Especially if it was a new one. 
<laughs> it was some dreadful old thing. <laughs> you may have an affection for it, some men do, but I mean, uh, you know, it, or a car, or whatever it is. After all, this uh, colt, the, this ass or donkey, or however you like to look at it, was the sort of middle-class way of transport in the old days. Very, very rich, you had a camel. <laughs> or a horse. But the sort of bourgeoisie, the sort of middle class, sort of tended to use donkeys. And um, this, of course, was the cult of an ass. And there must have been some way in which the Lord uh, sort of told someone, put it there. And they obeyed. Whatever happened, they put it there. And, of course, it happened. The two disciples went. They weren't told what it was all about. The Lord didn't say to the two that went to untie it. Now then, this is going to be tremendous, and you're going to be so excited. You're going to have part in it, too. I mean, when you untie this, I'm going to sit on this, and I'm going to fulfill one of the prophecies of, Ze of Zechariah. The whole place will go wild. Then they say, oh, yes, Lord, we'll be in on this. <laughs> no, 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 the Lord never said a word. He just said to them, go and do this seemingly rather silly thing. I would have personally felt a bit embarrassed about it going up somebody else's colt, especially one that's not been broken in, <laughs> and untying the creature, wondering whether it might bolt with me hanging on for, for dear life. The fact of the matter is, it was a small thing, but s there was obedience on two sides. First of all, someone tied the colt up and evidently just um, ha had some inner knowledge that uh, it was going to be taken and that they were to leave it to God. It was something to do with God. And there were the two disciples who went and took it. That cult was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Behold your king riding in a lonely manner upon the cult of an ass. It was the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus officially as the Messiah and it was his great challenge to the whole leadership of the nation that he came now officially as Messiah as the fulfillment of scripture now I say here again is a small thing that led those two disciples and led that cult into uh, uh, the um, center of God's will. Many times I've heard the Lord speak to different people about the Lord hath need of the ass, as it is in the authorized version. You, know, you probably all know that that was the way Johnny Cochran came into the ministry of the Lord. When he sought the Lord, that great Irish evangelist, uh, in his youth after he'd been saved, uh, the Lord turned him to this scripture. He asked the Lord, opened the Bible, and read the Lord hath need of him. And of course, when he found out it was an ass, <laughs> he felt, as he always used to put it, that it was a confirmation <laughs> and accepted it from the Lord. <laughs> well, well. Uh, now there's another thing here too. Um, if you read in um, Mark 14 and um, verse 12 and 14, uh, 12, from verses 12 to 14, 
And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and make ready that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth two of his disciples and said unto them, Go into the city, and there shall you meet a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall enter in, say to the master of the house, The teacher saith, Where is my guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, this may, may seem quite um, sort of uh, obvious to us. I mean, uh, they said, where shall we eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and you'll see a man carrying a water pot. Follow him. But you see, we're also used to tap water. That we would have thought it a very unusual thing to see someone carrying a great big um, uh, pot of water. But you must remember in the East that it is the commoner sight. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people carrying water pots. <laughs> of course, the uniqueness is this, that it was always women who carried them. It was considered to be women's work to fetch the water. And so it was a quite unusual thing to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. So our Lord said, now go into the city, and of course there'll be lots of people coming back and forth with their water pots. You'll see a man. Follow him. And he will lead you to the place where he goes in. Go in and say, the master, the teacher, saith, where is my guest chamber? I've often thought about that water carrier. Supposing he dawdled. Well, it's not so silly. Supposing he dawdled. Uh, supposing he thought, I won't go the usual way today. I'll go another way. I'm so fed up with this routine. To the well and back. To the well and back. To the well and back. And I mean, normally it's women that do this work. <laughs> Now, I know in these days of the Sex Discrimination Act, one shouldn't say this, but I mean, the fact of the matter is that in those days, I mean, a man worth his salt would feel dreadful that he was doing a work that normally the ladies do. He would feel that somehow he was a speckled bird in his own milieu. I think it's interesting that this man was obviously obedient, and on the very day and the very hour that he was required, he was doing his routine job, I take it, as unto the Lord. Little did he know that he led those disciples to the place where the whole, there would, there would um, take place the fulfillment of Jewish history. That was the Passover. And it was to be the final Passover and the fulfillment of all the hopes and aspirations of the people of God for freedom, for service, to be a people that God could use to the ends of the earth. I find that very wonderful. Some of us are just water carriers, routine jobs, Day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. We feel at times like a little cog in a machine. And we say, is it worth it? Dear child of God, it would be worth it if in the whole routine there come a day when God causes you to step into his purpose. Don't think that just because you have a humble job and a humble routine, 
It means that of necessity you are not an integral part of the unfolding purpose of God. And then there's something else here which I find rather wonderful. It's the next two verses. And he will himself show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There make ready for us. Who told this dear man? Who told the owner of the house? Now get the whole room ready, cleaned and swept. Now it is perfectly true that in Jerusalem of the old days, people used to hire out rooms for um, Passover meals to everyone who come up for the festival. Rather like you see those little notes in windows um, in sort of tourist spots. Bed and breakfast. I mean, they did the same in Jerusalem. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, they used to put a little ticket outside and say, room for Passover. Mm. <laughs> this is true. Um, but, I mean, apart from that, don't you think there's something more <coughs> than, uh, than this? There's no deposit paid. There's no guarantee. The one whoever to, uh, uh, to whom these ones spoke, did he know the Lord or did he not? All we know is he'd prepared the room. And the interesting thing is, and we haven't time to look at it all, those two disciples got down to the chores of preparing the Passover meal. Now, now all you dear ladies um, who feel at times that there you are trapped in a kitchen doing things, these two, and of course they weren't peeling spuds or that kind of thing, but you know they were doing the equivalent chores of the day. They were getting all, just like a Christmas meal, getting that tremendous Passover meal all prepared. They went all through the chores, getting it all done, just those two desires. They had the remotest idea that it was the fulfillment of the Passover. They hadn't the remotest idea that they had stepped into divine history and were actually with those hands and those simple, ordinary, routine chores that millions of others were also doing, they were at the heart of the realization of the purpose of God. For this was the Last <coughs> Supper. This was to lead to our Passover, sacrificed for us. One day in the kingdom, we shall find that the last are first. And that many a soul who spent her life at the kitchen sink and in humdrum chores has found her place in the realization of the purpose of God. Well, we just have to rush on, I'm sorry. Um, I'd like to um, turn you to John and chapter 6. And uh, just one verse we'll only read. John chapter 6, verse 9. There's a lad here who hath five barley loaves and two fishes. But what are these among so many? Of course, you know the story. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. <laughs> One little lad with five loaves and two, two fish. What was he doing with five loaves and two fish? Of course, the loaves would have been the little round ones, just little small um, flat-type rolls, you know. Very, very simple. It was his lunch. Quite clear to me. Some people seem to get the idea that he'd fished the two fish out and was about to eat them raw. Of course not. Jewish hygiene laws, kosher laws, were so strong, he wouldn't have been able to do that. No, I suppose the fish had been prepared properly by mother. Some loving mum somewhere in the background had said, Where are you going? Hear that rabbi again. <laughs> well, all right, all right, but you're not going out without a meal. <laughs> Now you just stay here for a little longer while I just get you a packed lunch. 
And of course, I suppose he moaned and said, Oh, I must go. I'll never be near the front. I'll be right at the back. And I want to hear him. And I want to see him. And I want to see who he heals. And so mother said, Oh, bite then. Five loaves. Fish. Wrapped up. Go. And see you're back in time tonight. And out the little lad went with his packed lunch. I suppose he wheedled his way somewhere to the front, under the legs, you know, all the way through, <laughs> till there he was, sitting somewhere near at the front. He caught the eye of somebody. One of the apostles went round saying, has anyone got any food here? And everyone looked blankly. And then he, the little boy said, I've got my lunch. And of course, Andrew took the boy, snaffled his lunch, went straight to the Lord and said, Lord, we've got five barley loaves and two... Oh, but how stupid. What's that amongst all these? But the Lord said, give it to me. Now, I suppose that little boy must have sat there with his <laughs> eyes bigger than saucers. For to his amazement, out of the Lord's hands, once he blessed those five little barley loaves, it seemed as if bread came out to feed the multitude that not all the bakers in Galilee could have produced. Out and out and out and out and out it went. But the amazing thing was, it always remained five barley loaves. So I suppose he was looking, thinking, goodness, my, wait till I tell mother, my five barley loaves, look at it. This going out there, they're all being sat down in great crowds, in groups of 50 all over, and my five loaves are coming, and they're coming back and going out and coming back, and my five fish, why, it seems as if all the fish in the Lake of Galilee are coming out. But it always still remained five barley loaves and two fish. <coughs> Only when they gathered up the fragments did they have twelve baskets full of fragments. But in the hands of the Lord, the five loaves remained five loaves, although they were multiplied, and two fish, although they were multiplied. Bread and fish is always a symbol of resurrection life. Our Lord, you remember, when he came back from the dead, baked them a breakfast and gave them bread and fish. The fish, of course, was the great symbol in the early days, not the cross, but the great symbol of the early, early Christians was the fish. The risen Christ. Dear child of God, you may be so small, so insignificant, and you see the great need around you. You say, what have I got? Five loaves and two fish. Such a little of the Lord. But dear, dear child of God, if you would only let the Lord take of what he has given you of himself, if you would only give it back to him and let him bless it, that's the first. They'll never be afraid of blessing. Some people seem to think they've got it all when they've got the five loaves and two fish. Give back your five loaves and two fish and you'll get a much bigger blessing. And then when he, what he blesses, he breaks. And what he breaks, he gives. Some people try to get to the giving from the blessing without the breaking. It never works. What God blesses, he breaks. And what he breaks, he multiplies. He gives. Small things, who has despised the day of small things? What about um, uh, uh, Mark um, and um, uh, chapter 14? And uh, Doug has already read this to us. I will only just mention it in passing. 
it's really from verses 3 to 9, but it's the story of Mary's alabaster cruise of precious ointment. Now, of course, in one sense, this was no small thing. This alabaster cruise was of an ointment that was kept for burying. And people used to, as they used to do in old-time China, if you belong to a certain um, level of society, a more aristocratic level of society, one of the big things to do was to get your coffin in many, many years before you died. In fact, you often used to have tea on your coffin. Um, I mean, you used it like a table, a beautiful coffin, because it was, it was where your bones were going to lie. And it was a point of prestige, keeping up with the Joneses. Um, uh, in the good old days I'm talking about, of course. Um, and in, uh, the, uh, in Judea, uh, amongst the Jewish people of the early days of this era, um, uh, they would often keep the spikenard, or those very costly um, uh, ointments, for their burial. It was really their whole little nest egg was in that, because if they wanted to, it was an investment, they could sell it. It was, it's probable that by our standards today, it was worth about 400 pounds. Now, in one sense, that's no small thing, but in another way, it was a small thing. And the challenge came about her little nest egg. And I suppose she might have thought to herself, well, there's no point using that. But this dear disciple, she saw something. She saw what not one of the other apostles had seen. Now, dear sisters, lift up your heads and listen. What the men never saw, this dear woman had perceived by the Spirit. Perhaps only dimly. But dimly, she of all the others somehow saw that the Lord was going to die. Now, in those days, it was not quite the done thing for ladies to talk at meals. They didn't even sit with you at the meals. See how far you've come. <laughs> um, they used to lay the table, prepare everything, but had to keep out of the way. And so she did the only thing by which she could communicate to the Lord what she had seen. She took her nest egg and she broke it and she anointed his feet and his head and the fragrance filled the whole house. What is even more wonderful is that the Lord said, wherever the gospel is preached, this that Mary has done, that this woman has done, will be told as a memorial. That little thing, in one sense, that she did, has brought her into a place beside the gospel. Because the gospel has got to produce this kind of vision and this kind of service. If it doesn't, it is no good. So, dear one, do, don't despise the day of small things. 
I could go on and on about small things. I could talk about the young man who when all the apostles fled from the Lord, followed until someone tried to grab him and he left his sort of vest or whatever it was, towel that was wrapped around him, he left it in their hand and fled for his life. It could well have been Mark. He wasn't one of the great ones. It's interesting that he was in the garden. Now, did he stay awake when the others slept? And is that how we've got the record of our Lord's Prayer? We don't know. All we know is that it was a young man. But when the others fled, he followed further. Or I think of those dear women who went early on that Sunday morning to anoint the Lord's body and prepare it for its burial. Again, it was the ladies' work on the whole, but nevertheless, it's interesting that there were only three of them. What about the rest? So disillusioned, so disappointed, so broken with grief that perhaps they could feel, oh, what is the point? But those three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they came early in the morning. Mary Magdalene even earlier than the other two. They came to fulfill a routine job that was required by Jewish law in those days in the embalming of the dead. And because they were faithful, they were the first to meet the risen Christ. It was not to the great apostles that the Lord revealed himself, but the first person the Lord ever revealed himself to was Mary Magdalene. She could have been so grief-struck that in one sense she wouldn't have even gone like the rest. But in her grief, she went on to fulfill her duty with the others. And because they were fulfilling their duty, they met the risen Christ first. The Lord watches us so carefully. For in the end, in this matter of eternal government, our vocation, it is really in the small things that we are found out. May the Lord help us all not to despise the day of small things. Shall we pray? Lord, we all, I have, and all of us have this capacity, Lord, for despising the day of small things. We overlook them, Lord. We let things slip. We become careless. And, oh, Father, we find that somehow we've missed out in something that thou hast been doing or something thou hast been saying. Father, we pray together, O oh Lord, get our hearts for thyself. For we know it's a heart matter. And once thou hast really got the, our whole heart, then, Lord, we shall be more careful about some of these small things. Dear Lord, help us all, so that in doing whatever it is that we have to do, 
Lord, we may find in the end that we have become part of thy unfolding purpose. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. May you be one who the Lord breaks, blesses, and gives. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus. Watch it.